Father, the power that saves blind people and make them into people of light is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wisdom and eloquence of men cannot save us. It doesn't have any power to change us. It is a simple power. It is a simple delivery of the message of the gospel that radically transform our lives and our destiny. Father, we confess that there is part of us still that believes this is foolishness. There's part of us that still believe that we need wise counsel. We need more practical advice to make it, for us to make a diff, live a different life here. But that's not true. It's the gospel and gospel alone. So as we preach the gospel here this morning, may you save those who are perishing. May you strengthen those who are weak. May you give wisdom to those who need it. But at the end, Lord, through this word, may Jesus Christ be clearly presented and believed. All this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are continuing our series on 1 Corinthians. And as you are keenly aware, because we had the small group meeting, leaders meeting yesterday, and we were sharing how blessed our small groups are. So therefore, if you, have a, if you, ever, if you are attending small groups, you know that one of the main reasons why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians it's because there is, there's a division in the church. There's much infighting, much drama, much lawsuits, much pride, much sexual immorality. You name it, they have it. There are, there is, that is the type of church where you will want to leave. Right? There is much um, dissociation, dissension, right? dissatisfaction. Every word that starts with a D, it is in that church. The question is, how is Paul addressing this major issue? How is Paul addressing the division of the church? As we preached about it like, for the last three weeks, he doesn't do it by directly addressing the issue first. He doesn't say, you guys are fighting, knock it off, right? get, like, you know, you know, get along. He doesn't say that. The way he addresses dissension is he goes into a very long exposition of who God is. And the reason why he's doing that is because in order to resolve any conflicts, any, you know, any dissension among the group, whether it is within the church or within the context of marriage, the way you are unified in any relationship is you need a proper definition of what you are doing or where you're belonging. The reason why Paul goes into detail about theology as he's addressing these divisive issues is that in order for the Corinthians to get along, they need to be reminded of the proper definition of church. In fact, if you think about it, what salvation really is, is God is restoring, persuading us and restoring in us a proper definition of all things. God is the one who established reality. God is the one who defines all things, right? And when we live in accordance to how he defined things, then those things start to flourish. Then we start to flourish. When we, what sin is, what blindness is, is that we, we are not living in accordance to how God defined things. We define things the way we want them to. So in a sense, salvation is a restoration 
a proper definition in our lives, and we are living in accordance to those proper definitions. This is very heady stuff, philosophical stuff. I'll give you a few examples. So I'm doing couples counseling, like premarital counseling for two couples. It's an action-packed Sunday. After this, I got to go like counsel, premarital counseling. To, like a couple was getting married in in March, and then right after, I'm counseling two couples that are getting married in April, right? So it's like action-packed Sunday, right? And what we're doing with these two couples is I'm we're, we're I'm doing I'm, I'm reviewing and reading together the book called Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. And the more that I read this book, and the more that I counsel people based on this book. I realize how important this book is. And the, and the reason why this book is so important is because it gives you a definition of what marriage is. Tim Keller's main argument is marriages are falling apart because people have an improper definition of marriage. People think marriage, right, is you're, you're, you're marrying your soulmate. You're getting married because you found the love of your life. You're getting married, I don't know, whatever you know, the bachelor says that you're getting married. But because people start marriage with their improper, wrong definition, the more they live in that marital relationship, the more they realize they had the wrong definition of what, was marriage, what, what marriage was all about. And because they realized they had a wrong idea of marriage, they, the marriages start to de- deteriorate. Tim Keller is saying, definition of marriage according to scripture, right, is marriage is a reflection of the triune God, where two distinct people come together to form one flesh, Marriage is a symbol of Christ's love for his church. Marriage is a place where you show the unconditional covenant love of God towards your spouse. So that book defines meaning of marriage over and over and over again. When you start to view your marriage, define your marriage in the light of what God says it is, then your marriage starts to flourish. What sin does, In our sinful nature, we define marriage the way we want it to. And because we define it the way we want it to, it starts to uh, disintegrate. Definitions. The thing that saved my marriage more than anything else is I don't, God prevents me from thinking about my wife the way I want, the way that I want to think of her. There's a temptation in me to filter her through what my definition of what a wife is supposed to be, right? Very sexist, very patriarchal, disgusting, right? Just this, no, I'm not that way. But there's a, there's a part of me that wants to think of her in that way. But by God's grace, he lets me stop thinking about her in that way. What is always in the back of my mind is she is not, you know, a person that I could freely treat as I want. She is my beloved bride in whom God has called me to love her as he loved me. You need proper definitions. Husbands, you are not to think of your wife as you, as you, want, whatever, as, as you want it to. Wives, you are not free to think about your husband the way you think, according to your definition of what he ought to be. Wrong definitions destroy things. To have... A, to have a meaningful work life, I think. You need a proper definition of work. What is the biblical definition of work? God has given you your job so that through your job, he will provide for the world. That through your job, right? If you're an artist, God is giving you the artistic job to display his creativity in the world. If you're a lawyer, he has given you that job to display his justice in the world. 
If you are an, you know, I don't know, a CFO of an insurance company, God has given you that job so that people would have auto insurance so that when they get in accidents, they're not going to go bankrupt. If God has given you a job delivering pizzas, it's because he wants you to feed people on Sundays. You know what I mean? On Super Bowl, right? Whatever it is. The reason why God has given you that job, you need to look at your, you need to define your job as how God defines it. It is when you start forgetting, when you start, when you forget how God defines your job, if your job's in, like if you define your job only in terms of how I'm getting treated, how much money I'm making is all about me, that you will not be satisfied with your job. What salvation is, is he restores proper definition of things. The way you overcome racism, the way you overcome sexism, the way you overcome lusting after another person is when God starts to restore a definition of humanity in your head. When God starts to show you that that person that you're lusting after, that you hate, is the holy creation made in his image. And you are not to treat people that way. When you are persuaded in your mind a proper definition of that person, you're not going to want to lust after that person. You're not going to want to hate that person. It is when we have improper definition of things. It is when we think of all things the way we want them to, the way we want to. That is when division happens. And that is exactly what is happening in the church in Corinth. People are fighting over issues that don't matter. Issues that have no significance whatsoever. People are hating and fighting and suing each other over. Why? They have lost the definition of the church. They have lost the definition of what the people of God, what the people of God is. So in order for Paul to unite them, he's reminding them who exactly they are, who they are exactly. Who are they according to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 through 5? If you are the people of God, if you are the church, if you are the people of God, you are nothing short of a miracle. Main point of these five verses is God, the church, the people of God, is established not by the wisdom and the power of men, but the people of God are established through the power of God. Did you know that? If you are a Christian, you are a Christian because God demonstrated his power in you. Two major acts of God's power displayed in the Bible. Number one is creation. The first act of God's power is demonstrating creation, where he, he makes things out of nothing. And like even physicists will agree Right? Because the universe is constantly expanding, physicists say, well, then if it's constantly expanding, then there has to be a point where there was nothing. Right? You can't just expand out of... Right? So even physicists say there was, there was a period in the universe where there was nothing. In the period of nothing, God created everything and things that he created. Out of nothing, he created everything and the things that he created is so beautifully perfect and complex. A lot of my, like a few of my clients are scientists, right? And they do crazy things. One of the, one of the cases that I'm working on, I'm not, I don't know whether I'm supposed to say it, it's public information. One of the clients that I'm working like, with right now, he, he's designing organs with a 3D printer, right? That's what he does. He's designing organs to, to help, help save people's lives. 
and I'm reviewing like what he does. It, I, like, it's so scientific. Like I have like my head hurts. It's like 40 pages of what he does, and it's summary of what he does. But it's what I understand about his work, not much. But I understand it's complex, it's genius, it's brilliant. Out of nothing, God created someone like him. Creation is the marvelous power of God. But greater than the act of creation is the act of resurrection. Jesus died on the cross. Three days later, God the Father resurrects Jesus Christ from the dead. Greater than the demonstration of the power of making something out of nothing, it is reviving the dead. God's power is demonstrated by, by, by resurrecting his dead son and seating him on, his, on the throne of glory. That's the power of God. And Paul is saying, like the act of creation, like the act of resurrecting Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian, you are a Christian because God has resurrected you from spiritual death to eternal life. The person that you have disagreements with here in the church, the person that you are fighting, I don't know, a lot of our fighting is in the background, right? Like whispers. A lot of the people that you're whispering about, a lot of the people, maybe it's your spouse, even the spouse that you are so dissatisfied with. Can't you see if that person is a Christian, that person is a miracle power of God? Can't you see that? And that's Paul's point in these five verses. God's power is clearly demonstrated in the life of the Corinthians, Paul says. In just, he says, by just the evidence of the fact that God's power is, has been demonstrated within the Corinthian church, Paul is reminding them. He's saying, look at just how you are formed. Paul is reminding the Corinthian church of the awesome power of God by reminding them how they were formed in the first place. Let's go, let's go to these verses. Verse 2. I'm, I'm sorry, let's go to verse 1. Right? This, today is like one of those verse-by-verse verse days. So let's go to the verse-by-verse, verse, right? Verse, eh, okay, verse 2. He says, and it was with me, uh, verse 1, and it was with me, sorry, brothers and sisters. He says, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence of, or human wisdom or, or proclaim to you your testimony about God. I'm sorry, like this is like NIV version. Somehow I did the NIV. So Paul is reminding them, right? God's power is demonstrated. Look, first of all, remember how you were formed. He says, when I came to you. How exactly did Paul come to the Corinthians? Paul came to the Corinthians, like as, as I reviewed Acts chapter 18. He got, you know, kicked out of Thessalonica. He got kicked out of Berea, right? Because of the Jewish, angry Jewish mob. He went to Athens tried to argue Jesus Christ with a bunch of like egghead philosophers, right? And they kind of like, eh, they kind of mocked him. So he went, came to Corinthian, Corinth, right? And when he came to Corinth, he didn't know anybody. Once again, Corinth is like a big bustling city full of money and diversity and is a huge city, right? Paul is a small farm boy, right? Farm boy coming to a big city, looking at the buildings, looking at the diverse people, looking at the money, Paul's, and Paul's alone, Right? 
And there's no church support. They didn't have embraced ministries to help pay the salary, right? Paul was alone. So what did he do? He got a job building tents, right? He was a tent maker, right? Making tents, right? And then making tents by night, uh, by day, and going to the local synagogue in late afternoon to start teaching about Jesus Christ. It's very ordinary, right? He was, he was working with his hands by day, going to like, you know, a local synagogue and teaching about Jesus Christ. When the synagogue people kicked him out, what did he do? He, f- he forms a house church, right? He befriends one of the guys, and he makes a house church, and he starts preaching at that house church. That's how the Corinth, Corinth, Church of Corinth was born. Back in the day, right, we, back in the Greek times, the, the, the founders of major religions and, and the school of ideas, they were philosophers, right? They were just pontificating of the meaning of life in the academy in Athens. They, those dudes didn't work with their hands. All their days, they were spent teaching and pontificating about what the meaning of life is. Paul didn't do that. Most of the time, he was, he was working, and then he was going to the house church and preaching. Just like he is, just like us. When I was reading this word, I was so encouraged, because Paul was kind of living like me, Right? I'm not like, you know, I, I'm not this world famous speaker, right? Despite our, you know, I don't know how many Apple iTunes followers we have, but I believe maybe it's like in the, in the low, like less than five maybe, right? I know you don't listen. It's all right. I don't listen either. Oh, you should listen, by the way, right? I know, right? But it's not, Paul didn't do something that's extraordinary. He worked and he preached and taught. That's how the church was formed through ordinary means. Paul didn't go to the public square and argue for Christianity. He didn't hold an apologetics conference. He didn't start a social movement. He didn't do any of that. He worked with his hands, went to a house church, and preached. He worked 9 to 5 at EY, went to the Burke Small Group, and led a Bible study. That's That's what he did. That's what he did. Where's Danny, by the way? No? That's what, that's what happens. That's how I came to you, Paul says. And when I came to you, right, that's how he came to you, an ordinary man. He says, he says, I did not come with you with eloquence or human wisdom. Not only did he, his method very ordinary, working with his hands and teaching, he says, I didn't come to you with eloquence or human wisdom. Why is this so important? Because Athens, Greece, right? is the birthplace of philosophy. The greatest philosophers in the world, history of the world, came, came from Greece. Plato, have you heard of that guy? Aristotle, have you heard of that guy? Epicurus, have you heard of that guy? Maybe not Epicurus, right? These major Greek philosophers, like even now they're influencing the world. They came from Greece, and Greece was a heady, heady country. And the citizens of Greece were used to these teachers pontificating, eloquent, wise teachers, teaching them what the meaning of life was. Oh, they were good orders. They were really wise. They were eloquent. And they established these schools of philosophy. Paul says, I didn't do that. Think about it. Even now, right? Even now, one of the major forms of entertainment is podcast. Do you, do you, do you podcast? 
I podcast, right? Some pod, podcast is wonderful, right? So I don't know who you listen to, but and, and what podcasting really is, is this is phenomenal. It's this person, right, on a microphone in their basement of their house, just talking about stuff. That's what, what podcasting is, right? Just talking, instructing the listeners about things, right? My, one of my favorite podcasts, comic book movies podcast, fantastic. Right? I know everything going on in the world of X-Men, Star Wars, right? Because there's a couple of dudes who show and they just talk about Marvel and DC stuff. That's all it is. Joe Rogan, right, one of the most famous podcasters around, his podcast is for three hours. He talks and just talks for three hours. And people listen. There is a desire of the human heart that seeks wisdom. And modern-day podcasters provide that. But what, is, what do you need to be a successful podcaster? What do you need? You need two things to be a successful, successful podcaster. One, you need wisdom. You need to know what you're talking about. Number two, you need to be eloquent. You need to be able to communicate what you know. Two of the important things of being a podcaster, wisdom and eloquence. Other than, if, if, if you have a guy who doesn't know what he's talking about, you're not going to listen. If you have a guy who can't express what he's thinking about, you're not going to listen. Wisdom and eloquence are the paramount of a successful school of thought. Paul says, I didn't come with you with that. Paul says, I didn't come with you with human eloquence or wisdom. What did he say? He said, I came to you to present the testimony of God. I came to you in a very ordinary way. I didn't come with you with eloquence and wisdom so much of like the you know, Greek philosophers do. By the way, Apollos, one of the guys that you know, you know, taught the church after Paul, he was a very wise and eloquent speaker. Paul is, I think, implying, look, you like Apollos because he was wise and eloquent. I'm not like, I didn't come with you like Apollos did. All I came to you was I came to you about the testimony of God. Why does Paul use the word testimony? The way that these Greek philosophers did their thing is they would communicate ideas about what life is. Read Plato's Republic, Apology. Read the work of Aristotle, right? Epicurus. They, are, they, they gave you concepts about what, what meaning of life is. Paul says, I didn't come with you with concepts. You're used to ideas. I didn't come with you with ideas. I came to you with a testimony about God. What is the difference between a testimony and a, and a concept? Testimony is a witness, is a first-hand witness, right, of, 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 of what you're proclaiming, to, of what you're saying. Paul is saying, I didn't come with you to present ideas, another idea about religion or God. No, I came with you as a witness of the power of God. He says, I came to you because I know what I'm talking about, not because of some concepts, but with experience of the power of God. Christianity, right, is not an it's not just a religion of ideas. Christianity at its core was founded by witnesses. Witnesses who have seen the resurrected Lord. These Greek philosophers, these podcasters, these philosophers give you ideas about things. 
I give you a first-hand account of who God is. That's what a Christian is, by the way. A Christian is not just a person with an idea of God. A Christian is someone who has experienced firsthand the power of God. A Christian is someone who knows, who has experienced the power of God in their lives. The thing that worries me about the modern church right now, there's a lot of Reformed theology guys, right? Like they read Calvin, they read the Bible, I'm Reformed, I'm Reformed. And they present Christianity in terms of just ideas and concepts. I believe God is this. I believe God is that. Apologetics is important. Communicating the ideas of God is important. But that's not what evangelism is. Evangelism is not a debate of ideas. It is presenting the witness of the power of God. Are you a witness in your life of the power of God? Or is your Christianity merely stuff of ideas? How do you know whether your life is, is that of witness or just ideas? Is God changing your behavior? If God is not changing your behavior, perhaps it is because you only love him in your ideas and you are not a witness. Paul says, I didn't come with you with ideas. I didn't come with you with eloquence. I didn't come with you with human wisdom. A simple testimony of the power of God. Not only did he come with, with idea, specifically, what did he come, what did he come to the church of Corinth with? What kind of, what kind of testimony about God, God did Paul come to Corinth with? He says, verse 2, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you. Let's read verse 2. Is it printed out? Oh, here we go. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul says, the, thing that I, the testimony of God that I came to you was I came to you proclaiming Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse 2, the, the, the first part of verse 2, he says, for I decided. What does it mean when Paul says, I decided? When you decide something, you're making a choice between two or more options, right? If, if you just have one option, that's not a decision. If you have two or more options, you make a decision. So Paul is saying, I think, when I came to you, I had the option of presenting Jesus to you with human wisdom and eloquence. Paul knew the Bible back, backwards and forwards, the Old Testament backwards and forwards. He did. Why? He was raised with it. He was trained with it. That was his job. He knew the Bible. He knew the Old Testament very well. He knew Greek philosophy. He knew his stuff. And I think there could have been ways that Paul could present Jesus in a more relatable way. Right? He could have used human wisdom. He could have used funny stories. He could have quoted more Greek philosophers. He could have played the Greek philosopher game, but he didn't. It's like with me, too, right? I think back in the day, before I came here, and one of the reasons I came here, right, was the pastor that I was working under back in my old church. He, he put me aside and he said, because he knows the way I preach, he says, you know, it's fine the way you preach, he says. But he says, you should give more moving sermons. 
You should touch their hearts, he says. Pull in their heartstrings. If you move your people, they will grow spiritually. I thought, no, they won't. That's what he's saying. He's saying to me, like what Paul is thinking. Go to your people with eloquence, with human wisdom. One of the people who were, when I first started here, one of the first, one of the first, one of the people said, they no longer go here so I can talk about them. They said, you know, I, I like your strong sermons, but you should mix it up. You should give more uplifting sermons. So give me a hard sermon one week and give me an uplifting sermon the other week. You know, just varied it up, she says. Joe Austin, right? I, I listen to his sermons time to time. I don't think he's a crook. Right? He's not a crook. He really loves his people. He, 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 you can tell he really loves his people. Sometimes I listen to his live call-in show, and he's really lovely and nice. He really cares for his congregation. He really does. He's not one of those guys who says, you know, God wants me to have a G5, give me money. He's not one of those guys. He really loves his people. And I think a CNN reporter asked him, What's, why do you preach the way, he pre way you preach? And he says... And the reporter asked him, why don't you preach about sin? And he says, you know, I don't want people to feel bad on Sundays. Life is hard enough. I don't want them to feel bad. I want to encourage them, and I want to lift them up. So because he loves his people, he wants to encourage them and lift them up. That's why he preaches the way he preaches. Is it wrong to preach sermons that move you? Is it wrong to preach sermons that will lift you up? No, it isn't. It's not, right? In fact, guys, I think I have it in me to consistently preach moving sermons, right? I have enough stories. I have just enough pop psychology. I have just enough stories about movies and pop culture. I've read, just, I've seen just as much like, touching human Korean dramas Man, Korean dramas get me, eh? I could use all that to make you feel great. And in fact, if I do that, maybe we'll grow numerically. Shorten my sermons up, making you feel great. Won't that be lovely? Amen. Why don't I do that? Paul could have done that too. Why doesn't Paul do that? It's because if Paul did it that way, and if, because if I did it that way, the church would not be built on God's power. The church would be built on man's power. I can give you moving sermons, but if I give you moving sermons, your faith will be built on me and not on God. That's why Paul says, when I came to you, I claimed to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. What Paul taught the Corinthians is he taught them who Jesus Christ is and the fact that he was crucified for them. That's all he taught. Why? Because that is how God saves his people. 
That is how people are transformed. That's how people become, become, from children of darkness, they become children of light. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only way that God saves people. The gospel of Jesus Christ is, the, is God's only plan of salvation. The gospel of Jesus Christ is God's only method of rescuing people. He doesn't rescue people with clever words. He doesn't rescue people with clever human wisdom. He rescues people through the presentation of the gospel. When we believe in the gospel, when we trust in the gospel, our lives are flipped upside down. What is the gospel? Gospel starts with God, doesn't it? Some preachers think gospel starts with our sins. No, 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 no. Gospel doesn't start with your sin. Gospel starts with God. God created all things. God is a definer of all things. Everything move and have its being in him. But, but human beings, they've rebelled against that. They say, nope. Adam says, nope. Nothing, everything does not revolve around you. Everything can revolve around me. Satan said that. Adam said that. Eve said that. And because we're descendants of Adam, we are guilty of his rebellion, and we inherit his, 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 his attitude. Since Adam and on, all of us say, everything revolves around me, not God. Back to the first part of the sermon. I define all things. I define who my wife is. I define what my husband is. I define what my job is. I define what sex is. I define everything. Everything was meant to revolve around him. Everything was meant to to. to to be defined, to, 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 be, to exist in conjunction of how God defined it. We don't do that. Therefore, death, sin and death enter the world. Look, Kobe Bryant died last week, didn't he? Like I was in a wedding, I was in a marriage counseling, like premarital counseling, and I saw the text, and I just couldn't believe it. I go, I get it, I get it. It was like HuffingtonPost.com reported, fake news, right? And I didn't believe it. But I went home, and it was real. How do you know? EW.com said it was real. So the Entertainment Weekly says it's real. It's real. But the morning, the country mourned over Kobe's death, didn't it? Even though death is the most natural thing in the world, we mourn over his death as if it is something unnatural. There is part of our souls, even though death is the most natural thing in the world, there is part of our souls that still believe we're not supposed to die. Things die all the time. People, animals die all the time. But we still can't, we're still shocked by it because there's a part of our souls that knows that we're not meant to die. I think our souls remember our original design, that we're not meant to die. We're, li- we're meant to live forever. But we die because sin entered the world. 
and the judgment of God is people die. That is the destiny of all of us. But God says, nope, I will save my people, he says. And he sends his only begotten son who came into the world to show the world who God was, who God is. And not only did he show who God is through his, through his words and obedience, he died for his people on the cross. He redeemed us. Redeemed us, it means he purchased us back for God. He laid up his life so that we can have life. He died so that we can live. And when you believe in that, when you trust in that, He resurrects you. He forgives your sins. He forgives your transgressions. Not only does He forgive your past transgressions, He starts to instill His life in you, in this world. And after this world, the glory of the, glory of the kingdom of God belongs to you. Do you know that He forgave your sins? Do you know that He's changed your nature so that your nature now agrees with God? Are you convinced that this world is no longer your home? That there is glory, eternal glory that is waiting for you? This place is just a pit stop compared to the eternal glory waiting for you. Are you persuaded by that? Do you lean on that? Is that what matters more than anything else in the entire universe to you? Someone who believes in that, trusts in that, that person is saved. And when you believe and trust in that, God's power is demonstrated in you. Is the power of God demonstrated in you? Are you indoctrinated by these concepts? Or is it real to you? Indoctrination means ever since you're a kid, that's what you're told, and you believe it just because you believe it. Is your faith a matter of indoctrination, or is it a matter of power? Paul says, if you believe, it's the power of God that's working in you. Think about it. Just ask, just, let's just be objective. About, let's just be reasonable about this. Does it make logical sense to you, what I just said? That if you believe in a guy who lived 2,000 years ago in Carpenter in Nazareth, saying, I'm God, and if you believe all your sins will be forgiven, you will not belong to God, and eternal glory is waiting for you. If you just believe in that guy, then your life will change. Does that make reason? Is that re, does that make is that reasonable to you? It's foolishness in the eyes of the world. It really is. Look, like I said, like the guy that I mentioned frequently, Beckett Cook, right? The guy who was was he was a gay set designer in L.A., right? Maybe some of you are new. I'll tell you the story. So, the most recent non you know theolo the theology book that I read was this guy's biography. So Vecchia Cook was this Hollywood gay set designer living in L.A. His life was pretty cool. He was making the money in Hollywood, right? Pretty good. Didn't have any existential crisis, right? One Saturday, as people in L.A. do, he goes to a really fancy coffee shop, right? Not those awful Starbucks pizza brand, no. One with a slow-drip coffee. Can I get slow-drip coffee? That kind of coffee shop where it takes forever for you to have a cup of coffee. And he was, he was sitting outside drinking his fancy schmancy coffee, right? Give me your church coffee any day. I'll take that over that fancy schmancy coffee. He was drinking his fancy schmancy coffee. 
And he was like, him and his like friend was looking over, and there was these like young Christian people your age, in an LA coffee shop, putting having their Bible out, talking, having a Bible study on a fancy schmancy coffee shop in LA. And he goes, that I don't see every day. So he kind of like had a got in a conversation, right? He got in a conversation with them. He goes, what are you guys doing? We're studying the Bible, they say, unashamedly. Right? And they go back and forth one hour. They go, okay, good, bye-bye. And the guy said, hey, if you're interested, this is the address of a church. We, we meet in the local school. Come visit if you want to. He goes, okay. So he, he left. He said, for some reason, he couldn't forget that encounter. He said, oh, okay. You know, let me check that church out. So he doesn't know what led him, but for some reason... He wanted to go, so he checked that church out, right? It's called Reality LA in LA, right? And the pastor dude, there was no human wisdom the pastor dude was saying. He was, he was like, the, he said, when I went there, music was okay, right? We sang the same thing that we were singing, it was okay. But when the pastor dude came up, he preached for one hour on Romans chapter one, I think, he says. And he says, when he started listening to that, Something clicked. He says, everything that pastor guy was saying was true. And he was like absorbing it in. And after the sermon, during the prayer time, he hears the voice of God saying, Jesus is my son. The Bible is true. You now belong to me. He hears that. And he starts crying and wailing. And like, he's just like, and he went home. In the morning, he got up, and that voice still, he still hears that voice. Jesus is my son. The Bible is true. Now you belong to me. And he says that very moment when he got up, he says he's no longer gay. Homosexuality, left it, right? It didn't matter to him whether he was gay or not. And that stayed with him for 10 years. One sermon, one afternoon, Change a man's entire affection disposition because he heard the gospel. Does that make sense to you? The world says, the world won't think that, that, that it doesn't make any sense. I, I share this story with one of my liberal Christian friends, and they say, well, maybe that guy was never really gay, or maybe that guy was just brainwashed. They, they, they have all these theories of what's wrong with him because the world cannot understand. But what happened to him is exactly what Paul is saying. It happened to the Corinthians. The gospel was preached. People believed their lives were flipped upside down. The power of God. Is that your conversion story? Paul says, the way that I know God has worked is because what I did to you doesn't make any sense. I simply preached Jesus Christ and he crucified and God did his work. Another evidence that Paul says that God has formed the Corinthian church is not only did he just preach the gospel to them, he says, I came to you with weakness and fear and trembling. Why does Paul says, like, what, what does Paul mean when he says, I came to you with, in weakness? What is Paul's weakness? We don't exactly know what he's talking about, but like, we can infer from 2 Corinthians what his weakness was. Part of his weakness, right? One of the, part of weakness was his physicality. Paul's criticism, Paul says, that you guys criticize me. In 2 Corinthians, he says, I think 
chapter 12, he says. He says, I know what people say of me. He says, you guys say, I'm strong in my letters, but I'm weak in my appearance. Which means a couple of things. Which means, it can mean one thing, that he's really strong with his letter, but if you actually look at him, he's not all that much to look at. Right? He's not very fashionable. He's kind of short, balding. He looks really sickly. This weak little guy. Not very eloquent. He's weak. When people look at him, they wouldn't say, well, that guy's a founder of no religion. No, no, no. He was a simply balding little man. He could have mean that, or he could mean he was sick. He was constantly sick. Or Paul could mean his weakness, he could mean of all the suffering that he had, went through to preach the gospel. And that's, that's demonstrated in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, for the gospel's sake, I was beaten, I was imprisoned, I was shipwrecked, I have the scars in my body to prove it. When he takes off his shirt, he will see the, you know, the scars where he got the lashing. In his head, he will see the scars where he was hit by a, by a stone. He says, I, gosh, preaching the gospel was not easy. I was abandoned, I was shipwrecked, I got beaten. These are the things that Paul may refer to about his weakness. But whether it was his sickness, or whether it was his appearance, or whether it was his persecution, what all this weakness have in common is this. When Paul says, I came to you weakness, he knew. What he's saying is, I knew that there is nothing in me that could possibly do what, what, what happened to you. Because through all these weakness, what God has shown him over and over and again is that he cannot do anything apart from God. But referring to his weakness, Paul is saying, my life experience has been, I cannot do anything apart from God. When he says, I came to you in weakness, he, he's saying, when I came to you, I knew I cannot do anything apart from the power of God. I knew, the reason I know God worked in you, because I didn't have the power to do anything in you. That's what Paul means when he says, I was weak. He says, I can't do any, I couldn't do anything apart from God. Do you know God uses the weak to do his work? If God, the person that God uses to make a difference in other people's lives are, is not the confident guy with full of Bible knowledge, it is a guy who knows they cannot do anything apart from him. How do you know that you're weak? Do you pray? Prayer is the best indication of whether you think you're weak or not. If you're full of Bible knowledge but do not pray, may I say, it's because you think that you can make a difference in people's lives through your knowledge of things, and that doesn't happen. You can have all the Bible knowledge in the world. You can have all the eloquence in the world. But if you think you got this, then you're not weak. And God cannot use you. Do you know, on Saturday evenings, I struggle and I beg and I pray and pray and pray. The reason why I'm late on Sunday mornings, by the way, is because I sleep very late on Saturdays. And the reason I always sleep very late on Saturdays is I have to pray for today. Because I know, because by God's grace, I know whatever I say will not make a hill of beans to you if I do not depend on him. Small group leaders, Sunday school teachers, youth group teachers, mothers and fathers, do you know that you're weak? 
God has no use for self-sufficient people. God has no use for your lofty ideas about who you think He is. He needs weak men and women. Are you weak? Or are you strong? Paul says, not only came to you with weakness, I came to you with fear and trembling. What is the fear and trembling that Paul talks about? Fear and trembling Paul talks about is this. He looks at the job that God has called him to do, and it's a big job. It's a huge job. It's a job that a human being cannot possibly do on his own. Like, for example, like tomorrow, let's, let's, if you go to my office tomorrow, you see like a stack of files on my desk. And when I go, I'm fe- filled with fear and trembling. How in the world am I going to do all this? Paul, when he looks at what God has called him to do, it's impossible what he has to do. Someone says the job of a preacher is like going to a cemetery and preaching to one of those empty, like in, 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 in the grave, go into one of those graves and say, hey, rise up. That's what a preacher's job is. It's like going to the dead and asking them to come out and live. How can you possibly do, how could any human being possibly do that? That's why Paul is filled with fear and trembling. Small group leaders, Bible study teachers, Sunday school teachers, youth group teachers. Do you have fear and trembling with your calling? You think your life experiences make a difference in these students' lives? You think your quirky perception of things will make their dead souls live? You're mistaken. Because there's nothing in your arsenal that can ever raise the dead. There's nothing in your arsenal that can ever make a person who doesn't love God love him. There's nothing in your arsenal that can ever convince someone that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. There isn't. Paul knew that. That's why he was filled with fear and trembling. Let's summarize here. Paul came to them in a very ordinary way. He simply presented the gospel, which is foolishness to them, to people then, and to people now. He came to them knowing that he could not possibly do anything apart from God's grace. He came to them knowing that it is impossible what God has called him to do. But God did something in Corinthians. And that's why Paul says in verse 5, he says, verse 4, he says, in the demonstration of the spirit of power. He says, verse four, My speech and my message were not in plausible words or wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He says, despite all these things, you're saved. And you're saved because not of anything that I did, but because of what God has done. Corinthians, you are a miracle of God's grace. Embrace 
You are a miracle of God's power and grace. Every single one of you. Therefore, how will you treat each other? Are you, are you going to define each other the way you want, them to, want to define them? Are you going to define each other through the lens of this miracle? Understanding that builds restoration, you know. But before we end, a little bit of warning. The people of God are formed, as Paul says, through the preaching of the gospel and through the power of God. That's how a Christian is born. But dare I say, there are some of us here this morning that were not born, that, are not, that do not call ourselves Christians because of God's power. There are some of us here who, are, who call ourselves Christian, not because of God's power, but because of the wisdom of men. What does that mean? There are some of us here who came to church because your parents wanted you to, and you know no other options. There's some of you here who came to this church because, I don't know, you wanted religion in your life. And this place seems like a good place to find religion. There's some of us here, maybe you like the way I preach. I don't know why you would, but you do. And maybe you listen to what I say and, I find purpose in that dude speaking. And maybe you're here because of me. I don't think you are, but if you are, man, thank you. Maybe you're here because your friends are here. Maybe you're here because you think this is what a Christian ought to do. While I'm glad that you're here, if you are here because of any of these reasons, it is not because of the power of God, but it's because of the wisdom of men. And the way you know whether you're here through the power of God or the wisdom of men is this. Are you changing? Are you not the same as you were before? New affections, new purpose, new meaning. God is clear to you. Is that, is, this is happening to you. And the reason why I say this to you, and it's not to make you feel bad. It really isn't. I don't want you to feel bad. I want to be like Joe Austin. I want to lift you up. But the reason I'm saying this to you, it is so that you will experience the power of God and confess, maybe, Lord, I am here because of men's wisdom. But demonstrate your power in me. Make me believe and trust in the gospel. Pray that prayer. Seek him out. Let us pray. A couple of things that we need to remember. Most important thing is are you here based on the wisdom of man? Are you here because of all these human reasons? Or are you here because you are born again and you belong to God? If you belong to God, it means that you have experienced his power in your life. Have you experienced his converting power in your life, saving power in your life? If you have, praise him and ask him to let you see your brothers and sisters in that light. If you're here based on human wisdom, before it's too late, confess that this is why you're here but ask God to demonstrate his resurrecting power in your life. If you are whispering, fighting, and just judging your fellow Christians, oh, can't you see how wicked that is in the sight of God? Because the person that you're opposing is to save, is a miracle of God. Repent of that and ask for restoration. Let us pray for these things. 
and we'll continue. Lord, we thank you. We praise you for the miracle of salvation in our church. I believe and know that the same miracle that happened in Corinth happened here. The same miracle that happened in Becca Cook's life is happened here. We ha I have brothers and sisters here who are clear witnesses of your saving power in their lives. Oh, and how we are blessed to have, have each other. What we read, what we spoke about today, it's not a foreign concept. It is the reality that happens to all churches everywhere. And we thank you so much for allowing us to experience that and embrace. But Lord, even though, yes, we are glorious saved people, but Lord, we're still living, getting, we're still living with our old mentality sometimes. And living in our own mentality means sometimes we don't see each other as miracles. We see each other through our biases and prejudices. And we do things that are hurting you for what hurts you more than your children fighting and, 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 and killing each other through our words and, and our gossip. May this understanding of our, the miracle of the saving power of God brings us to repentance for mistreating others. And may this, may this be the power that drives us, Lord, of, to, to unity and reconciliation. May you help us to be very careful with one another. May you help us to be very careful in the way we criticize and critique and hate each other. Father, restoring us the proper definition of the church, restoring us the proper definition of husband and wife, restore us what a proper definition of what it means to be a brother and sister in Christ. Father, if there, there's, if there are those of us here who are here because of human wisdom. Maybe it's human tradition. Maybe it's based on human needs of friendship. Maybe it is a human prag pragmatism that agrees with whatever that is preached here. Whatever these human reasons are, if we are here because of human reasons and not the power of God, Lord, I pray that you'll demonstrate your saving power in their lives. May the foolishness of the gospel become the real truth in their lives. May the gospel that is so, such a nonsense to the world be the only thing that we rely on and hope in. May we experience the work, powerful work of your Holy Spirit in our church. All these things, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.